Well, welcome to the Unstoppable Freedom Podcast. I'm Jimmy Page. The Unstoppable Freedom Alliance is part of a growing movement across America that's fighting for freedom and the values and ideals that this country was founded on. Well, I'm super excited about our guest today, Than Bennett, and you are going to be inspired by him. Let me tell you a little bit about him as we get started. Than is the author of My Fame, His Fame, and In Search of the King. He is a public policy professional with more than 20 years of high-level experience, currently serving with the American Center for Law and Justice. Than has worked extensively at the highest levels of U.S. government, as well as at the United Nations and other international governing bodies. He has more than 15 years of on-air TV and radio experience, regularly engaging with a worldwide audience. He and his wife, Brooke, live in the woods of Southern Maryland with their three children, Jude, Brell, and Hope, and along with an always changing combination of goats, chickens, pigs, ducks, rabbits, dogs, cats, bees, you know, you name it, it's there. Well, he's a man of God, and you're going to want to lean in for this conversation. Dan, welcome to Unstoppable Freedom. It's a pleasure to have you. Jimmy, my brother, it's great to be with you. That, that guy you've got coming up on the show sounds like something. He's going to be great. <laughs> oh, yeah. I set you up, didn't I? I set you up big time. That, that farm part at the end, Jimmy, that's quickly becoming um, the fa my favorite part about me. It's, it's just a ton of fun. <laughs> well, listen, okay, having that's a great segue, right? <laughs> and, you know, as we get started on the podcast, I always ask the same question of all our guests. What do you love most about, about America and why? Man, Jimmy, I, I, I know you asked this question, and I just I hope you have a, a couple of minutes here because there's just there's just a lot. There's mm -hmm. so much about um, the complexity of this country um, that it's kind of, kind of hard to know where to start, you know. But I, um, I think for me, a lot of it comes back to this idea that the American form of government vests liberty, vests mm -hmm. freedom in the same vessel that our creator did, right? I mean, mm -hmm. when our founders saw fit to sort of vest freedom and vest liberty in individuals, and when they recognized that those liberties come from the creator, mm -hmm. they were acknowledging a biblical truth, Jimmy, that I, I really think sits at the core of God's character. And mm -hmm. um, if you look at the long thread of biblical truth, I mean, just time and time again, he says this in Galatians, it talks about being called to freedom. Um, let's see, in 2 Corinthians, it talks about where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And in the book of John, this is in, in some ways, it's my life verse, uh, Jimmy, but it says, if you know the truth, the truth shall set you what? It shall set you free, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that's only sort of scratching the surface of a very long message that runs all the way through scripture that God created us uh, to be free. And, you know, at the risk of maybe droning on here, um, I think it's important for us as, as, as believers to grasp why. Mm. Because I think um, the reason that freedom is so important to God is because while he first chose us, right, Jimmy, what he desires from us is that we, what, freely choose him. And if yeah. you think about the rest of the world, if you think about the rest of the arc of human history, there are a lot of belief structures there are a lot of faiths that can be forced on people that you can mm. take by way of coercion. That's, that's not so with salvation. It, it's freely offered to us. We take it on voluntarily. And so mm. in this country, we work to maximize freedom and we do it to create an atmosphere that is conducive uh, to others uh, accepting that free gift. So, you know, there's yeah. probably 
I think there's probably fair to say there's a danger in overemphasizing this. Maybe we can get into some of those pitfalls later. But I would, I would answer your question this way. I would say our country has at its very core yes. a foundation that acknowledges that principle that individual liberty uh, reflects the character of God. And, you know, do we implement it imperfectly sometimes? Yeah, 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 we do. Um, but it's up to us followers of Jesus, to continue bolstering that, to continue strengthening it. And um, maybe if I could do a shameless plug for a second, this is why I like your work so much, Mm. because your work is intended to buttress that foundation that our founders laid. Mm. And, um, you know, I would say it's groundwork for kingdom work. And so, you know, for, for that reason, Jimmy, I am madly in love with this country. I always will be. Warts yes. and all, I'm not about papering over imperfections, but yes. I'm madly in love with this country because I think it was founded in a way that reflects the character of our Creator. I love that. that you, you did that beautifully, and I think it's interesting because I feel like the way you feel about America and what you just communicated is the way I feel about America. Mm-hmm. And, but increasingly, uh, we're, we're telling this next generation in particular, anybody under 20, anybody under 30 almost, that, uh, that this is not our foundation, right? That there's a different foundation. But it's interesting that you brought up those verses. You brought up Galatians, 2 Corinthians, 1 John. Last year, my word for the year was freedom. Mm. So every year, you know, it's our custom. Uh, John Gordon, Dan Britton, and I wrote a book called One Word That Will Change Your Life. I've done it for 23 years now. I'm on year 23 forming kind of a chapter of your life, a, a way to focus your life for greatest life change and uh, the ability to have a, the, the greatest positive impact on others. But my word last year was freedom. And in the front of my journal, uh, I have all of those verses listed. You know, I did mm. a, a search in the Bible talking about freedom. And, uh, you know, Jesus came to set the captives free, right? He came for freedom's sake, uh, eternal freedom. And I love the fact that it's tied to our original documents, Yep. Right, I mean, I think back to the Declaration of Independence, uh, and you know, words r- really have power. But in the very beginning of that, you know what it says: "We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their Creator, the One that made them, with certain unalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness." And then, and then it goes on. And if you conclude that, where they list all of the reasons that they're declaring their independence and this desire for freedom. It ends with this, and for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on divine protection and divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Right in the original document, setting up the stage for our nation, there is this this dependence upon divine providence. What do you think of that? Man, just so beautiful, so amazing. And I, I, I guess the two thoughts that come to mind, uh, the first one is the reason they structured it that way, Jimmy, is because they recognized our frailty. They mm-hmm. recognized that if, if freedom were taken away, if freedom were consolidated in a central government, 
eventually, over time, human nature would corrupt and it would be used to eviscerate everything that they were setting the foundation for. So even yes. in that, they recognized the, the warts that would, would, be on, would be on any people group, any nation. And yes. again, it's reflective of our Creator, our Savior, recognizing our imperfection and our need for Him. And that's actually why He came for us. So it's not... It's not because we're flawed. I mean, that, that's the reason for the need. It's not a reason to cast aside the intent. It's actually reaffirming uh, why it's needed. The other thing, you quoted uh, several founders there, Jimmy. I would I would refer you to another one that uh, is quoted a lot, but I, I constantly encourage people of faith to come back to this one. And it's when John Adams was asked about, you know, um, uh, the Constitution. And he said that our Constitution uh, was made only for a moral and religious people, and that it would be wholly inadequate for any other. They were trying to form a country, Jimmy, where a moral and a religious people would find freedom, and they were investing in those people, the, the, the freedom and the authority to really self-govern. And I use that, I use that as a mirror for people mm. of faith, because if, if we are the ones uh, yeah. that have that freedom. And if the government intentionally was set up to not restrict us, that burden's on us, Jimmy. Yes. we got to make sure that we're behaving in a way that is uh, rooted in a moral code and yes. that is governed by a sense of uh, care and concern for our neighbors, ones that we disagree with, ones that we disagree with. Um, because if we don't uphold that, our government's not structured to sustain itself. That was the whole design. That power, that authority is rooted in us. It was done so intentionally, and it was done because our founders looked at structures that were set up else, elsewhere and saw that they were going to fail. This is the one that they decided that had the most strength, and it depends on us standing on a moral code. I love that. It, that quote by John Adams is uh, glossed over today often. And this, the second part of that preamble of the Declaration says this. Uh, first of all, it says that, that our rights come from God, not government, right? So that's kind of the summary of the first one. Rights come from God, not government. But the second half says that to secure these rights that come from God, governments are instituted among men, deriving their powers from the consent of the governed. So it, it really truly is a we the people, and really in many ways we the people of God, right? Because as you said, there is a moral code. In fact, our founders didn't really talk about freedom, they talked about a, a deep, we've kind of replaced a word with freedom. We've replaced the word liberty with freedom. But, but those two things are, they have some nuances. And liberty meant that freedoms were constrained with a sense of your faith, your faith that God is in control, that he governs in the affairs of men, and in virtue. You know, it's designed for a virtuous people. Not people that are perfect, but people that are striving to a higher power, to please God rather than to give up all of the rights to government. Man, that's amazing, Jimmy. It's probably a consistent theme you'll hear from me during our time together, and I think it's probably one you'll bring up as well. Is I, I, I think it's important to grasp the difference of this because if freedom becomes something as muted and something as powerless to us as making sure I protect what's mine, I got to get what's mine and you can't stand in my way and I'm not going to let you and I'm going to make sure that I get it. There's a place for that defense, Jimmy, mm. but that's not the freedom we're called to. Yeah. The freedom we're called to is one that was instilled in us inherently, but it's to be used and spent for others. It's to be yeah. it's to model what Jesus did for us. So 
you know, if all of our political debates and look, I, I'm not a I'm not a kumbaya kind of guy. Like there yeah. there are things that we've got to fight for, Jimmy, yes. and there are things that we've got to stand up for. But if the end goal is uh, just vanquishing the opponent and and getting what's mine, we've missed the mark. We've yeah. just missed the mark. This American experiment was was set up to be a lot more than that, and certainly the mission of Jesus when he came down to earth was for more than that. So we, yes. we got to stand on those those boundaries, those restrictions that we put on our government, but we don't do it to make sure that we're not trampled. Because yeah. in the end, actually we are supposed to lay down our lives. We need to do it in defense of others so that they might have an atmosphere to find what we already know. So well put. And you know, um, it's funny because a life well lived is a life lived for others, mm. right? I mean, I have lived a good part of my life selfishly, right? In selfish pursuits. I mean, I'm honest enough to admit that. I'm deeply flawed, just like everyone else, I hope. Um, but I have this, uh, because I have placed my faith in Christ, because I've received the gift of eternal life, the free gift of eternal life by faith, um, because of that, this mm -hmm. grace in my life, I'm motivated now to live a different kind of life, to, to be the very best that I can be, to glorify God, to benefit others, and to really fulfill my own potential. But you mentioned something really interesting here. You talked about um, the culture, right? And really, this quote by Adams that you quoted, that this, our government, our country, our nation, is made for a moral and religious people. Um, I think that's part of the reason why this thing is pulling apart, because in many ways, we've kind of removed God from the public square in many ways. We've made it more and more difficult for people to express their faith even to have the freedom of speech and the freedom of religious expression, which I do want to get on, but this culture idea. You said it. We, we don't want there to be winners and losers. We want to create a culture that honors God and that brings out the very, very best in people. That's kind of the inner workings of our culture. One of the reasons why in our mission we don't say win the culture war because that's a pretty popular statement today. And all that does is put this group of people against this group of people and maybe a whole bunch of people in between that don't like each other very much, aren't listening. And instead of saying we want to win the culture war, the second part of our mission is to revitalize the culture. And that's based on our values, our core values, our founding values. Tell us a little bit about that. How do we as believers navigate that cultural conflict, if you will? Yeah, I mean, I think some of this goes back to where we started the conversation, Jimmy, but I'm, I'm with you. I, um, I, I cringe a little bit now when I hear the term win the culture war. I really yep. do, and I cringe um, because I, I think it maybe sets us up for some disillusionment because it, it's sort of suggesting this idea that the earthly culture is going to be one one day, right? And right. Uh, that's, just, that's just not going to be the case. I mean, a biblical life, a consecrated life is never going to match the culture, nor, nor should it. Hmm. So when we, when we keep aiming for that goal um, and then it never happens, I think we get discouraged. We get beat yeah. down because we don't think that our mission on earth is is being accomplished. And so, you know, I actually, the, the term revitalization, um, I, it's one that I use a lot too, mm -hmm. uh, Jimmy. I think that's really the goal. And yeah. and we, we aim to revitalize the culture. Even that, though, isn't really the end goal, right? right. Um, right. 
we work for a revitalized culture so that we can better pursue our primary mission, which is leading consecrative lives that draw others to a knowledge of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. That's the mission. Um, So if we keep those things properly prioritized, we're, we're first trying to draw souls. In order to do that well, we want to engage the, the mechanisms of culture. We want to revitalize culture so that people can have free access to this, this amazing gift that we know that we offer them. Yes. Um, and, and then and maybe the, maybe this, the sort of the, the cultural skirmishes, skirmishes that happen underneath that, they're, they're like tertiary at best, yep. right? I'm not yep. saying they're not important. In fact, a big portion of my career is dedicated to you know some buckets that would probably be in that third level. Right. Mm -hmm. But I do them because I think that put together, they help to revitalize the culture, not vanquish it, uh, not suggest that heaven will come down to earth before the coming of Jesus, but to revitalize the culture so that within that culture, uh, we can point uh, back to Jesus. And I do think, uh, you know, I don't I don't want to be too preachy here, but I think it's very easy even for me to mix those up. And when you mix those up, you can be pursuing the same things but pursuing them in the wrong order and your priorities get out of whack and your effectiveness goes out the window because you end up spending yourself for things that aren't worth spending yourself, right? Yes. So getting so them in true. the proper order, I think, is, is, is really important. I think that's a great point. And I think also what you're speaking about is where are we going to spend most of our time? Are we going to invest most of our time in the fruit or in the root that produces mm-hmm. the fruit? And so often I think the issues of today are the stuff that pop up on the tree. And so when there's things in our culture that are egregious, whether it's lawlessness or whether it's you know racism or whatever those things are that are showing up in our culture, um, even just the lack of civility, canceling people's opinion because it disagrees with you, um, having to shout and yell and have arguments about anything and nobody's interested in changing their mind whatsoever. Those are the things that show up on the tree, but the truth is we've got to invest in the root. The fruit is a direct representation of the cultivation of the soil around the roots. And what are we feeding this tree that's producing that result? So a lot of time we spend our time going after the bad fruit, if you will, instead of trying to reintroduce the right nutrients into the root. Um, what do you think of that? Is that, is that fair? Yeah. Um, you know, maybe let me give you a thought here and you may disagree with this, Jimmy, I'd welcome pushback on this if you do. But one of the, one of the ways I think about this is, um, when people ask me sort of what, what the biggest problem is out there, I actually, I don't give them the answer that they're expecting because they're expecting something like, you know, wokeness or whatever. I don't really like labels and, and, you know, there's reasons for that, but I have a biblical conservative worldview, and so, you know, sort of the leftism that's happening is what people expect me to respond with. And mm. because of what you just described, Jimmy, I almost always tell them that my my biggest concern and my heart beats first and foremost for the, for the Church of Jesus Christ. And, mm. and the reason it does is be, for a couple of reasons. One, I think the Church of Jesus Christ is the one that is equipped with the answer to address all of the, you know, those smaller buckets we talked about, yeah. all of those travails, the fruit, as you describe it, yeah. and they're, they're the way that we can impact it. Um, but it also does, Jimmy, because I think that's where we can have the biggest impact, right? If you look at, if you look at any debate, and maybe you think, um, you know, maybe, maybe I think I'm 90% correct on an issue, and I think you're 100% wrong on an issue. <laughs> it right? could happen. It could I, happen. 
I, I, you know, I'll have this conversation with your wife. I'm guessing she might agree with me. <laughs> Happens a lot. Beside the point. Beside <laughs> the point. Um, in that scenario, though, I think I still have more headroom for progress in the 10% where I'm mistaken or my community is mistaken or the Church of Jesus Christ is mistaken or my political party is mistaken than I do in the 100% where you're wrong. So yeah. if I can focus there first mm. and make ground, I actually think it's going to give me greater um, a greater foothold to maybe address some of the things uh, that are wrong, maybe even outright wrong with what you see. So mm. I think um, I think that's maybe a long way of answering the question. But I think if we immediately jump to the giant air we see on the other side of the chasm, we end up making no progress whatsoever. Where if we started first, if we started internally first. Yeah. Um, we would start to make progress. So that's a great, it's a great segue because the church's role is a profound role, right? And there, there's a lot of argument actually about whether the church should be involved at all in our, in our culture conversations or in creating culture. And I, the Bible that I read talks about being salt and light. It talks about being an ambassador for the kingdom, right? The heavenly kingdom. It talks about um, making a difference in the community that you're in, making a difference for others. So there, there obviously is a biblical um, bent on engagement in relationships with your neighbors, relationships in your community, all of these things. And then when I look at the involvement in the political realm from the very, very beginning, really hard to say that faith shouldn't be allowed in the public square and the role of the church should be muted. But that seems to be what we're experiencing to some extent. What's the best role for the church? What is the appropriate role in America? What's the role of people of faith? Well, first of all, if we weren't um, intended to play a role, I'm not sure why we're here. Um, I mean, we're supposed to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ. And I, to, to me, that would suggest that we're supposed to go into every industry, to every, you know, art, every profession and, and, and represent him. Um, but I think that obligation, Jimmy, is, is really more intense. It's more pronounced when you do live in a place like we do that has historic, and I mean historic, latitude and freedom and opportunity to engage levers of government, everything from, you know, local governments to state governments to federal governments. We, we can talk about some amazing uh, local government initiatives in a minute, if you want, where, you know, yeah. people that don't think like I do had a tremendous impact in a short amount of time in changing policy. Mm. Now, I do think, though, yeah. um, and, and I'm, not, I'm not trying to play devil's advocate on everybody, but I think all yeah. of these things have to be taken with nuance and with balance here. I think we have to remind ourselves, Jimmy, of the harm that we can do to the cause of freedom, mm. to the harm that we can do to the cause of kingdom, if we condition receipt of the gospel upon political freedom, right? Yes. And yes. God's kingdom is characterized by freedom, yes. but evidence all across the world and evidence all across human history shows us that his kingdom cannot be restrained yep. by the deprivation of personal liberty. And I'll just, yes. just, just look at modern day China, right? Mm. It is illegal. Jimmy, to have a Christian church in China that is not affiliated with the Chinese Communist Party. Right now, today, yeah. illegal. Yet there are more followers of Jesus Christ in China than any other country of the world, praise God. Mm, it's amazing. So I think we need to be careful to avoid suggesting that freedom is a requirement for God's kingdom to grow. Yes. But if we are to be ambassadors in the space and the time that he's placed us in, and he's placed us in the most prosperous country 
that the world has ever known. Mm. Shouldn't we be working to make that place and its influence around the world reflect his character? I don't see an argument against that. And I think I read the same Bible as you do. When I read, the, I, don't, I don't see an argument against his character being one that embraces freedom as well. So yeah. I don't think there's another answer. But I do think you have to, again, it's all about priorities, right? Yes. His kingdom's going to grow whether the political freedom exists or not. Yes. And, and I think that's what makes this a sacred trust of sorts. Hmm. Because we are a nation that is built on the foundation of freedom uh, that is given by God, granted by God. We've been given something special from our founders. And I, it reminds me of the quote from Benjamin Franklin, I'm pretty sure, where he, said, he was asked, you know, what have you given us? Yeah, and he responds by saying, "Well, we've given you a republic, mm -hmm. if you can keep it." Yep, and that's that motivates me as a, an eighth generation descendant of someone who fought in the Revolutionary War, as someone who was willing to sacrifice and serve and lay down their life for this for this idea of a of a government of self government, of uh, a government of people who are working to please God and create a society that reflects the heart of God, which is the way you have said it so eloquently. I, you know, we've been trusted with this, and I feel an obligation. When, when I'm trusted with anything of value, hmm. and it's like, okay, you've trusted me with something of value, what am I going to do to properly steward that? And for me, I'm unwilling to stand on the sidelines as that thing of value becomes uh, torn, is torn down or destroyed or changed yep. into something that you can't even recognize. It's the same way that I would be a steward of anything that God gives me, whether it's relationships or resources, you name it. I think every American citizen should feel that, has, has an obligation to say we've been given something special, especially believers, and it's up to us to protect it. What do you Man, think? I yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, there's there's a little bit of folklore uh, surrounding that story with Benjamin Franklin, but I love, I mean, I, I don't think there's any dispute that it happened, and that's essentially what the conversation was. But the part of it, this is maybe where I'm taking a little bit of liberty. Um, uh, when I read the language of how it's usually retold, the, the question is sort of asking a way of, of the ladies asking, what kind of government did you create? And Benjamin Franklin's response puts it back on her. He says, well, this is what came out of our conversations, which, by the way, those conversations were bitterly, they were they, they had such, such different ideas, yes. Jimmy, of what it should look like. But they ultimately came together. They came, made the best compromise that they could. And then they came out with a, a government package that Franklin said to the woman, if you, it's yours now, mm. if you can keep it. And right. if that doesn't speak to each one of us, that we've got the duty from here. They did a lot of hard work, learned from a lot of experience, and put gave us something that is worth preserving. Um, but we've got to be the ones that defend it. And maybe, maybe to take it one step mm. further, I think I think we do a disservice if we make this as simple as elections. Yeah. I I live in a yes. world of elections, and elections are important, Jimmy. They are. They uh, American elections have the power of life and death around the world. So if someone tells you that they're not important, they're not watching the same global stage uh, mm. that I am. They are important. But if someone tells you that the next election is going to fix everything, they're not telling you the truth. Yeah. And the most important thing that, that we as Americans can do, and I would say especially we as Americans who profess to follow Jesus, we need to pay 
attention in between elections. And we need to live lives in between elections that lives out that freedom that's been invested in us. Now, look, yes. every time you go to the ballot box, I think there's a chance to implement that in a way that makes D.C. reflect those values or makes your locality reflect those values. But I think if we were living intentionally between elections with that in mind, I think what you'd see is a community that didn't want to live without us, a community that wasn't trying to vanquish us. They didn't want to think about the possibility of their lives without us acting on their behalf. And so if we would focus there first, um, I actually think that the I actually think that the power of elections would diminish. Yeah. Uh, because quite frankly, we wouldn't be ceding to either our favorite politician or the one that we despise. We wouldn't be ceding them power that's not rightly theirs anyway. So, yeah. um, again, maybe maybe too long of an answer again, but I just I don't think detaching or disengaging, Jimmy. I don't think that's a I don't think that's a biblically rooted option on the table to us. We can fight about yeah. and have disagreements about how to engage. But disengagement, I don't, I don't see that one. Yeah, and I think it's interesting what you've said is that, you know, the real we put so much time and energy and hope in elections. Everyone does, no matter what side you're on. We look at it as like the fix, right? And I see a pendulum when I see national elections. I see this pendulum, and it goes from, you know, one side to the other. And it feels like now, in many ways, we're not even following the structure of our government properly because we've got all of these executive orders. We've got stuff that we can undo stuff with the stroke of a pen, when it, which is fine. There is a provision for that in our government, but it was never meant to be used this way, I don't believe. Our government is designed intentionally, and you know better than anybody, to slow things down, right? To really slow change. This checks and balance you know, putting different authority and responsibility in different branches of government is really designed to kind of make us think things through all the way through, Mm -hmm. right? It's a representative government. It's not like, okay, now we've got a new administration in. They can do whatever they want. The pendulum swings hard from the right to the left and then the left to the right. The rest of us are left with this whiplash in the middle of it. Isn't our government, and you know better than anybody with public policy, isn't our government designed to kind of grind a little bit and to and to make us make sure that we really want the change we think we want, it was supposed to be a little dysfunctional. Uh, yeah. Like that was that was that was a perk, Jimmy. Yeah, not, not dysfunctional in the way that we see it today, but dysfunctional right. in that it was actually hard to change anything because yeah. that certainty mm. is actually what provided the the security and the freedom for those living under the government. Right. I mean, I would give you a couple of examples just based on what you touched on. Executive orders. I mean, I think everybody looks at executive orders as, you know, either all good or all bad. And I, yeah. I would tell you, if there is a provision that has a meaningful impact in your life that can be undone by the stroke of a pen of what somebody you like or somebody you dislike, it probably shouldn't have been put in place by the stroke of a pen in the first place, right? I mean, in order to in order to have a meaningful impact in the lives of an everyday citizen, we, we mm. were told, and our government is supposed to structure this way, that there would be sort of several bites at the apple for us to engage. You go to the people's house where everybody has a representative that's closely attached to the people. You can try to impact that representative's view of it. Then it goes to the Senate, which, you know, you only have two of those for any given state, but uh, but they are supposed to have higher thresholds for passing legislation. And, you know, maybe this this maybe 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 makes me a wonk. 
Jimmy, but I'm I'm the guy that regardless of whether a guy I like runs the White House or doesn't, yes. I love the Senate filibuster. Oh, I love it. Me too. Because if you lower the threshold with, with which they can act, I know that rock's going to go roll down the hill on me one day, right? Yes. So yes. Um, but I, but I, but Dan, most people don't even consider that a fact. Nope. I no. Mean, oh, it's like hey, we're in power. Regardless of which side you're on, we're in power, and now we're gonna we're gonna roll that rock. Let's go. You know. And in, yeah. No, go ahead. I'm sorry. Didn't mean to cut you off. No, no. It's just it's just amazing to me because, for example, even with Supreme Court nominees, yeah. uh, the threshold is is just a simple majority that can be broken. Even if it's a tie, it can be broken. You know, stuff like that where we're making lifetime appointments that represent us and represent the Constitution, in particular, the rule of law and Constitution and the application of that. Um, we've lowered the bar. You know, and, yeah. and so you're right. I'm the same as you. I want to protect that filibuster because it makes us convince some people on the other side of the aisle that this is a good thing. Yeah. I, you know, I, there are 100 senators, Jimmy, and I don't have an exact count. But if it is if it is less than 95 of them who have had a position on both sides of this issue, mm -hmm. I'd be I'd be floored. If you know, if your guy holds the White House and you hold the Senate majority, you're in favor of getting rid of the filibuster and being able to pass major legislation with only 50 votes. Yes. If you don't hold the White House and you don't hold the Senate, you think preserving the rights of the majority of the minority is the most sacred thing you've ever seen, right? Yes. So the, the hypocrisy just abounds. Um, huh. But I, you know, I don't know. Maybe this is a good place to, to just, one of my favorite things to remind people of is we act like debate and disagreement mm. and dissent is some evil thing to be avoided. Yeah. And Jimmy, I, I mean, we, I, I go as long as you want on this topic because it's my favorite. I won't go long except Let's to go. say this. Look around the world. The places around the world where that's not allowed or that's suppressed, uh, dissenting opinions, criticism of the government, open debate in the public square. Jimmy, those are the most oppressive places on the planet. Yeah. So why in the world would we be afraid of that kind of even rancorous sometimes. It's not, not meant to crush people, but it is meant to crush ideas that can't uh, withstand the scrutiny of being enacted, right? Yes. I don't want an idea governing my life that can't hold up. Yes. I actually want it viscerally attacked before mm -hmm. it's enacted. Um, and right. I, think, um, I think maybe we've lost some of that thick skin along the way. We should, we should, yes. we should bring it back. All of us should be willing to subject our ideas to that. I totally agree. Gosh, you know, just this idea of debate, right? Everyone's afraid to express what they really think. And, and also we're afraid to lean in and consider that we may not have all of the information and maybe someone could give us information that would help us make a more educated decision or an informed decision. One of the, this is part of what is most concerning to me right now in this moment in America, the, our, foundational freedoms are being eroded, free speech is under assault. I mean, you couple that with cancel culture, and if somebody says anything that bothers or offends someone else, they immediately get deplatformed, devalued, pulled from all of the big tech platforms that they're on. They might even lose their job over a stupid comment, which I get it, you don't wanna make stupid comments. I don't wanna make stupid comments either. <laughs> I made I, Yeah, I know, right, I make plenty of them. This is one of those, you know, ask the right person. But, and, and one of the things about this now is we've created these safe places on our college campuses 
Mm -hmm. uh, we've created these free speech zones, which I thought the free speech zone was from sea to shining sea. <laughs> I mean, I kind of thought that was across the entire country. But we've created these safe spaces where you, no one is allowed to say anything offensive. I don't understand that. The very interesting thing about our culture today, and I really want you to weigh in on some of the things that are concerning you the most, especially around this free speech, cancel culture deal, is the presence of video has changed everything, right? Mm -hmm. Audio and video. Because now we could go back as, if you have a, an audio or video or email record or voicemail record of something, we can go back as far as possible in your life and dig up some offensive things and then use it against you now to disqualify you from whatever you're doing, regardless of who you are as a person today. Talk to, talk to us a little bit about free speech, cancel culture, what's going on? Well, I mean, it's a timely question, Jimmy. Just, just this week, actually, the organization that I work for had some of our content taken down by big tech um, because, uh, honestly, they, they, they didn't like one of the adjectives that was used in describing a political story. And when you actually uh, got into it with them a little bit, really, they, they wanted us to just use a different adjective that really meant it was a synonym. And so the, the extent to which big tech has, has taken sort of the controls um, is rather alarming. Now, now, I would say, look, I mean, the First Amendment is meant to restrict the government, not a private company. So the, the yes. right response in many of these situations might actually be to shame them in the public square and then compete with them, right? I don't, I don't want to see that power transfer to the federal government. I think it would actually right. get worse. That's a rabbit trail. I'll set that aside for a minute. Your, yep. your question about speech, and I'm going to get into everybody's business here just a little bit because I don't think I don't think it does your listeners any good for me to just point out the ones that concern me the most. Yeah, I I, I think um, both the left and the right are doing this. I look at the left, like you said, they're they're deplatforming de people they don't agree with. They're trying to be the the speech police, and if you say something they don't agree with or that, that isn't said the way they want it, they kick you off the platform. Jimmy, it's a terrible idea if you're yeah. if you're after flourishing. Not allowing opposite views to uh, refine each other is a terrible idea for flourishing. On the right, though, you see an uh, an effort to try to ban certain literature, and that's mm. a, a atrocious idea mm. that's been tried countless times across history, and it always fails. And by the way, there's a little bit of danger here, and I I, I should say this. There's, a, there's an effort that has been unfairly characterized as that, which is just parents trying to control their kids' curriculum. Yes. That's perfectly permissible, necessary, and required, right? Parents mm -hmm. are in charge of their kids' education, and yes. sending them to a public school that is supported by, by public tax dollars, parents yes. should, should be engaged in that process. Yes. However, if you're trying to ban literature... That harkens back to authoritarian regimes that have tried it countless times before. It is not the answer. And so I bring up those two yes. examples to just show we're all falling short of this, Jimmy. Yes. We're all falling short of embracing dissent and debate and free speech and recognizing that it's, it's not the popular speech that needs defense. The popular speech can take care of itself. <laughs> yeah. It's the speech I don't like. It's yeah. the speech that I find yes. dangerous mm. that I should be the most interested in protecting, not agreeing with, protecting, and then engaging with a counter argument so that, the, so that those around me can weigh the options. And if I'm right, if this speech is dangerous and my counter argument is the stronger one, 
Yes. Uh, Jimmy, they ought to be able to tell. And my idea ought to win in the end. But it's not because this one doesn't get to air it. That's yes. not how we're supposed to operate. It's fantastic. You know, I was just thinking about how, how you just... Uh, you kind of probably blew some people's minds right there by saying this whole speech police thing is happening on both sides of the spectrum, right? Mm -hmm. Because we always feel so righteous uh, mm -hmm. in the way we view our side, right? It, whatever side you're on. And if you're in the middle, God bless you, you know? Um, <laughs> <laughs> take a side. Come on, is anyway. anybody really? Yeah, yeah I said, no, not anymore. <laughs> not anymore. Um, this idea, so I just saw this past week uh, some students at a school who were throwing out Bible copies of the Bible, uh, in particular, actually some copies of the Bible that were that had other material in it from the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, in particular, yeah. because yeah. there's there are devotions written in the back. There's lots of resources written in the back of these athletes and coaches' Bibles. They're absolutely phenomenal Bibles because of the resources that are attached. Now, some people don't like that, but. Um, but I saw them throwing out all of these Bibles and a whole bunch of other things because they were written by, by white men. Mm -hmm. Now, I just I thought to myself, my gosh, so, okay, so if a view or if um, a belief system or a value system is written by the wrong group of people, regardless of what group you, you're referring to, then we're going to throw it out. We're going to burn it. And I've always said, let the ideas stand the test of an open debate, like you said, an open marketplace where we can debate the merits of, of what you're saying and then determine what's right for us. I'm not interested in banning things, um, but I do agree with what you said. You said something really interesting about the parents, right? Mm -hmm. We believe that parents ha are the educational authority in the lives of their kids. In fact, we're not co-parenting with the government. The government has nothing to do with parenting my kids uh, or any of our kids. And I think that's an important thing, but what they are trying to do it. You'll hear things in the public square, especially around policy debate, uh, where some will say parents shouldn't be involved at all. Once you drop your kids off at the school, parents have no say in curriculum. That is outrageous, and it's a, it's a new concept in the last 20 years or so. I love that you differentiated between our engagement in the ideas and the curriculum and silencing the opposition or removing the opposition. I think that's a big distinction to make, isn't it? Yeah, let me let me say a word on both those. That yeah. parents parents' right to control education, Jimmy. Uh, those who would put forward that parents should not be involved or that they're not even the ultimate authority, uh, I would argue they're just flat wrong. Now, I'm not doing that to try to shut down the bait. I'm willing to actually right. look at the data over the course of human history and say, but to suggest that that a, a child who has been given to parents and they have authority to raise them up in uh, a way that helps them flourish in society, yes. the idea that, that you would place them in a publicly funded school, which means you're paying the tax dollars to construct the curriculum to teach your children, and then somehow you have no role yes. in constructing what that curriculum looks like, Jimmy, mm -hmm. it just doesn't you don't even have to be a believer in Jesus to follow yeah. my logic here. It doesn't oh, yeah. hold up under sound logical reasoning. And so just, just kind of right. as, as, as an aside, someone who wants to use the arguments that I'm making on o open and free debate to push back against parental authority in a child's life, I welcome that debate any day of the week. I just don't think it's rooted on anything sound. Yeah. Um, as for 
the source of information and whether or not that should be evaluated in determining the merit of an idea. Hmm. I, I do think it's fair to, um, to consider the character and the fruit of yes. people who rally around certain ideas. And I think you can oftentimes uh, tell a motive by looking at that. Mm. It doesn't change the merit of the idea, however. And if it did, none of us ever, save Jesus Christ, would have been qualified yeah. to speak into any issue ever because we've yes. all fallen short. So it, it might be a part of the debate Mm. But it doesn't in any way, it's not dispositive, right? It doesn't determine yeah. it. And maybe maybe one example, there's a popular idea now, largely coming from the left, that the nuclear family is a bad yes. idea. Yes. And I think if you look at the motives and the fruit and the track record of those who are espousing that idea, yes. you can get a pretty good idea of why they're advancing that idea. Yes. However, I don't even really have to go there to prove to you that it's a horrible, horrible idea. Mm. Because if you look at, at young men, especially, who are not able to escape poverty or spend mm. time incarcerated or get involved at a young age in harmful uh, drugs and alcohol, they almost all of them have a universal trait from their upbringing. And it is that they did not have access to a loving, nurturing nuclear family. So you yeah. have an idea that is proving the most harmful to the mm -hmm. exact group of people that it's allegedly in defense of. And that's really all, all the only place you need to, to focus, Jimmy. Yeah. I do care about the flourishing of these people suffering. But this idea that you say helps them is the very thing that's harming them. Yes. That's what I'll engage you on. Yeah, but you're arguing with statistics and facts, yeah. right? And so now I would say right on because the, mm -hmm. the, the statistics don't lie. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about the indicators of whether you're gonna have a successful, flourishing life, it, it all goes back to that family structure, whether we like it or not. In yep. fact, families were, were thriving, uh, even during the most tumultuous years of the civil rights movement. The black family was thriving like never before, actually, in our history. Um, business ownership, participation in politics, economic advancement, for example. And with any race, any group of people, any human being, when you affect that nuclear family, and we're seeing it happen across the board, this is not racially driven, actually, it's, it's across the board, regardless. When the nuclear family suffers and dissolves, it causes direct negative impact to the kids that are in that family every single time. Yeah. You've got overwhelming evidence for that. However, people are elevating experience over facts and data, like the truth of, of the actual reality that we're facing versus how I feel about it. How do we have debate? How do we have conversations when we can't even agree that there is a source of truth that we should be dealing with reality rather than just an experience. What do we do about it? You know, I think uh, by the grace of God, I think I grew in this area a, a fair amount a couple of years ago when uh, there was a lot of the racial strife that was sweeping across our country. But mm -hmm. My wife, Brooke, and I, Jimmy, took some time to sit down with uh, several of our uh, black friends who uh, have differing political perspectives. Some were in our neighborhood, some were uh, leaders in our church. Uh, and just asked basically that question that, that you just 
ask me because facts and figures when there is when there is hurt and i think all of us can acknowledge there is hurt and there's hurt that is um has lasted through generations from a people group being oppressed um facts and figures aren't enough to overcome that even Mm -hmm. if the facts and facts and figures are correct right and i think what i learned jimmy that i'm still trying to grow in but i really had never grasped before is that uh, there needed to be a, a recognition on my part when I interacted with someone from that community of the hurt that was caused. Yes. And I think that was something that in my bluster of believing that I was correct, mm-hmm. that I was factually accurate, I'd been blowing past. Yep. And one of my dear friends, he said, uh, you know, when my, uh, when my son or I go out in public, my reception in the world is 180 degrees different based on one factor, whether or not I'm in my uniform or not. Hmm. If I'm in my uniform, I'm respected, I'm accepted. If I'm not, if I'm in casual clothes, it's like I'm invisible. So Jimmy, uh, those of us that follow Christ, we do need to make sound arguments. We do need to make rational arguments. We do need to be of a sober mind. But we also need to see people and not dismiss the experience that they've had relating relating to a world that may, may be different than ours. I mean, go, to yeah. go back to your question about country. Yeah. Greatest country the world has ever known. I firmly, firmly believe that. It doesn't mean that all of us experience it exactly the same way. And yeah, our, our country actually becomes stronger if we recognize that other people have different experiences with it than we do. Yes. I think that's a great point. And I think it's, it's worth... So when I look at the systems, the structure the individual flaws that we have, uh, I, I look everywhere and say, hey, how can we make this better? Mm-hmm. How, do we, how do we change this environment for the benefit of someone who is um, you know, disadvantaged because of it, right? I mean, there, if there are these things, and we've had them historically, we've had a number of things historically that have been wildly wrong. Um, and so, and, but I think that's why the people of faith have to engage and say, well, that's not okay, you know? Uh, it's not okay that we continue in this way. There, there always is going to be individual uh, sin, right? I mean, I'm going to make mistakes. I, we're all going to make mistakes. We're deeply flawed. We're, there are going to be racist people out there. There are going to be people who oppress certain pe- people because of a characteristic. But at the same time, what I object to is lumping everyone into a group based upon an external characteristic. Because now you're, you're not leaving room for uh, the individual character of the person you're talking about. So I think we've got some dangerous ground here where everyone, you know, we, we uh, define someone or, or a group of people based on external characteristics or based on lifestyle cha- uh, decisions that they've made, you name it, instead of looking at the individual and saying, hey, what, what's the character of this person? Who are they like? What do they stand for? And then we can unite kind of around our values rather than some external characteristic. By, by trying to put labels on large groups of people, what you've actually done is deny them their individual uniqueness as created and stamped with the character of the creator, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's sort of a, um, uh, uh, I, I don't even know how to describe it, but it's a divisive tactic that is used to pit people against each other who never otherwise would have been right uh, pitted against each other and it's 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 ascribing onto people either victim status that they didn't ask for and mm. doesn't help them mm. or you know perpetrator status 
uh, for someone who didn't directly commit an act and probably would have been more inclined to seek reconciliation of people, groups, or individuals. Uh, but if all of a sudden they're castigated as, as a perpetrator, they're always on the defensive, right? Yeah. So I couldn't agree with you more. The, 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 uh, this goes back, I think, to the motivation of, of people pushing a narrative. Uh, you can get glean clues um, from their, uh, about their motive uh, based on the fruit that it produces. And, yeah. um, you know, some of the curriculum ideas that you're talking about indirectly, Jimmy, I think it's pretty yes. clear that those are intended to divide. Yes. Yeah. And I just out of hand reject any, any concerted coordinated effort to divide us. Yeah. Uh, I, I just reject it out of hand. And then because my bias is to, is to, uh, look at everyone as an image bearer of God. Yeah. You know, we've all been created in God's image. We all have that that potential for human flourishing, and we all have value because we were created by God. We Each one of us has purpose and value, so I view everyone individually. You know, my brother would often tell me he's a behaviorist. You know, he, he likes to, <laughs> and maybe this isn't exactly accurate, but we, we decided that, you know, it's easier to judge someone based upon their behavior rather than anything yeah. else. Okay. You know, yeah. I mean, I get judged based on me, my behavior quite frequently, and <laughs> for, for better or worse, right? But um, you mentioned something about labels, and I do believe these these ideas, uh, particularly rooted in Marxism, which is, you know, for those of you uh, that don't know, Marxism is rooted in an idea. It's an atheist movement. Uh, it is absolutely anti-faith of all kinds. There is no room for faith in Marxism. Secondly, it's anti-family. It is made for the destruction of the biblical family. And then third, it is 100% opposed to individual freedom. So if, you, if you're concerned about that ide ideology, it is, it is running rampant. And this is one of the reasons why parents are engaged in their schools, because they don't want their kids indoctrinated into a way of thinking that is against everything that they believe. Yeah, and uh, nor should they. And in fact, yeah. they should take every opportunity to make sure that, that, look, and I know options other than public school aren't available for everyone, very, very right. difficult. But I, I tell you, you should move heaven and earth to keep your children from sitting under an ideology that is that destructive. Now, yeah. maybe before I give one other thought, I, just by way of encouragement, I mean, look at the city mm. of San Francisco. Mm. Uh, San Francisco yeah. voters, Jimmy, uh, would, would probably prefer a curriculum way different than the one that I would choose. These are, yeah. these are uh, liberal, I think by their, own, by their own definitions, not putting labels on liberal progressive voters who last week throughout every school board commissioner that was eligible for a recall. Why? Yeah. Because they were pushing ideology over education. And yes. so I think when you filter down to the voter level, and especially when you're talking about parents, this yeah. is not an effort that parents want. Now, you're gonna, it's not going to look like that because it, it riles people up and it, it, it drives a good media narrative. And so you know, the left political class is going to act like the grassroots favors this. They don't, uh, uh, Jimmy. And so on that local level, mm -hmm. every school board member yeah. with more than 70 percent was recalled for pushing uh, that kind of ideology. So I would just yeah. I would just encourage people. I think there's more agreement on this particular issue. I, I think you call it education freedom, Jimmy, but yes. and I think that's a, a great label for it. But even in even in a space where a parent is going to support a curriculum that I don't really like, honestly. They still want to control it, and they should control it. That's yeah. their child. 
It's their authority to erase them. I, I would argue strenuously that maybe some of their ideas are actually are actually destructive. But yeah. one way or another, they should, in the United States of America, take control. And in the probably the most leftist city in America, they did that yeah. just a couple of weeks ago. It, you know, that does encourage me. It encourages me because of where you started. You started the conversation by saying we put so, so much uh, stock and hope and faith in these national elections, which are important, of course. Yep. But really, where the, the revitalization of the culture, where the reinforcement of sound ideas and values and virtues, where that happens is at the local level, right? That's in our neighborhoods, and that's in civic uh, engagement, right? So having said that, you're in public policy, the world of public policy, right? Mm -hmm. um, how, can, how can we at the grassroots level, what are some of the most important ways that we can engage to make a difference in this area? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I would start by saying you've got to participate in every level. I mean, so, uh, Jimmy, if you um, if you are a student or you're the parent of a student, let's say, in a, in a jurisdiction that has uh, curriculum issues that are concerning to you and you're not known to your local school board, I would suggest it's probably skipping a whole bunch of steps to come uh, raise noise in Washington, D.C. Yeah. Because it's going to be a whole lot harder to change things from the top down, especially, and that, that's really appropriately so, I mean, especially in the space of education. I, I, really, I think that Washington, D.C.'s footprint in this space is already far too large. Yeah. But if you're known to your school board, uh, you can make a difference in a short amount of time whether it's something as drastic as recalling or, or changing your school board, or whether or not it's just putting on enough pressure mm. that they, the same group of people, uh, makes a change. That's where you've got to start. So that's mm. a specific example, but I think I would zoom out just a little bit, Jimmy, and say you've got to know who should have the authority, who does have the authority, and then you've got to be willing to put a little bit of pressure on it. I, I, I've, I've actually had a conversation with you about having yeah. tenacity in this space, right? I was just going to ask you about that. Yep. Okay, so, so let me let me tell you this, and I want you to tell your story too, but my boss right now, he, uh, he says that 40 years ago, he made a habit of showing up at school boards where his kids uh, were, were students on a regular basis, if for no other reason, to let them know that he was watching. Mm. That's 40 years ago, Jimmy. Wow. How many school boards or school districts right now do we sort of complain about, but we haven't engaged? Yeah. Yes. So I guess in simple answer to your question, I would say, let's be more than a raised fist. Let's be more than a loud voice. Let's show up where those decisions are made and try to get the right decision made. It's funny you, you brought up tenacity and the word pressure, because my experience has been, as I've engaged at the local school board level, is that there can be a very kind of dismissive, condescending type of attitude from the boards uh, and even from some of the school administrators, although most school administrators are, you know, are open to conversation. What I've discovered is until there's some intensity, some tenacity, some pressure, some emotion even, like, you know, some, some righteous yeah. emotion, uh, yeah. until that happens, it's almost in many ways that, that people are dismissive of the people that come and make the public comment. So I appreciate, I think that you, you have to stay in character, right? I have to keep my integrity and my values and I have to represent God in, in, a, in a, a way that honors him. But at the same time, 
Uh, I think there is a place to demonstrate how you really feel about something and demonstrate that it's, it's that important to you to get their attention. Every human is interested in self-preservation, Jimmy. Mm. And if, um, if an elected official who is responsible to the people that elect him or her uh, know that they're going to be held accountable and their position or their place of prominence will be on the line if they don't uh, respect the wishes of the people they're supposed to serve. It's a powerful incentive. It's also an appropriate incentive. Mm. That's back to our original structure. Yes. We're the ones, we the people are the ones with the power. It's not for punishing. It's to make sure that the apparatus of government is actually used for us. And usually that means kept at bay. And to, to the point about, you know, staying in character and, and holding in tension, this idea of love and compassion and then a holy anger. Mm. I, I think about it this way. I think maybe I even had this conversation with you, Jimmy, but yep. Jesus was known by his love. Mm. And occasionally he had to demonstrate anger to mm. show that love. Now, I very easily flip that around. I very easily am known for my anger because things make me mad. Yep. And occasionally I show love. That's yep. not it. That's not it, but it is not loving and it is not compassionate to be a part of a community that is um, destroying the upbringing of children and to stand by and do nothing. Mm. Showing love for that community is engaging with tenacity, it's engaging with uh, consistency, and it's using the leverage points that are available to you to rally the community around you. So I just don't see, yeah. I don't see any inconsistency uh, Jimmy, in showing a little righteous anger at times, being yes. tenacious, but doing it for the end goal of a loving result. I love that. I think that might be a great way to conclude our time, especially given your role in uh, in the highest levels of government. And you've you've kind of you know you know a thing or two because you've seen a thing or two. And we're super grateful that you're participating at that level. And we I'm really thankful for the way you've blended faith and you know participation in the public conversation. Thanks for thanks for that, my friend. Well, thanks for having me. And I just bat right back at you. We need people like mm. you who are defending this in the highways and the byways because we, where I sit, I sit right across the street from the United States Senate. We don't want it to come from here. If the, if yeah. the, if the decisions are coming from here, Jimmy, we, we've lost it. So we need yeah. people engaging where you are. Well, I appreciate it, man. We're going to be praying for you and all of your uh, activity and uh, We'll have you back on. There's a lot more to talk about, but super thankful for you. God bless you, my friend. Looking forward to the next time. Love you, buddy.